0: Town,
1: my little city
2: this is my Elgin. hello again and welcome to this is my Elgin hometown songs and stories I am sherry blazer and this is our second episode of the series in my first program I told you about my father's unusual catch in the Fox River down by the Kimball Street Dam, and I mentioned that he had a rather hard, scrabble childhood. Well, much of that was due to his World War I vet father uh, having continuing health issues after the war because of the mustard gassings in the trenches of France. In the uh, late 1920s, right before the Depression hit, my grandpa Blazer was at the Great Lakes Veterans Hospital repeatedly, ...undergoing treatments like uh, the newfangled iron lung. I mean, it was all to little avail. And meanwhile, his family back in Elgin was struggling badly to pay rent and to eat. And my grandma and four young kids, there would later be a fifth... slept desperately from home to home and were kicked out by several unforgiving unpaid landlords... And later in their lives, um, my dad and his sister, my Aunt Helen, were still trying to compile a list of all the Elgin Elementary schools they'd attended. Some had only lasted a few weeks before they were on the streets again looking for a new place. And finally the family moved into literally a garage on Elgin's South End, and by a series of uh, very lucky events that ironically found them somewhat in better shape than many a family once the depression did hit, that little setback garage uh, at 614 Lavoie gradually became a bona fide residence and it would be their family home for the next two decades. Now when they first took refuge in the Lavoie garage my dad was seven or eight and one of the most character shaping incidents of his life took place that holiday season. They had started going to Epworth Methodist Church, um, more or less because it was just the closest, and it was then located on Arlington Avenue at the corner of May Street, where Arlington and Saint Charles meet as a V, where the Elgin Fire Barn Number Five was and remains today, but as a museum. Um, nearing Christmas, dad's Sunday school teacher told the class that they would be filling a basket with food for a local poor family. So the next Sunday, every child in this class of five should bring in two canned goods to put in the basket. Well, my poor little dad went into a panic. His own family was hungry half the time, so how could he possibly ask his mother to provide him two cans of food just to give away. But he didn't want to be, you know, he, d- he didn't want to reveal himself to his classmates as unable to m- make his contribution. So he decided that even without telling his mother, he would find a way to make enough money to buy two canned goods himself. And he already was helping out he with his family. He was already accustomed to Uh, doing things like running deliveries for little grocery stores and businesses and setting bowling pins in a downtown alley and mowing grass, pulling weeds, shoveling snow, chopping wood, etc., etc. So he set about knocking on doors in his new neighborhood and asking if there was anything he could do to make a few pennies. And by the next weekend, he had earned enough to buy two cans of soup at a neighborhood mom-and-pop store. And he always told me that he never felt as good in his whole life as he did at the moment he stepped up in Sunday school class. The cans were hidden in his coat pocket, so his mother didn't even know about them. And he placed them in that big basket. And this was immediately followed by what he always told me was the worst moment of his life. With the basket... Brimming with 10 canned goods, the Sunday school teacher turned to him and sweetly said, George, take it. At first he didn't understand because he was used to being the cheerful delivery boy. So he said, take it where? And she shook her head and said, No, no, it's for you, George. Take it when you leave. It's for your family. And he was absolutely mortified. Uh, his own words years later, I felt like a piece of shit. It felt like I was about an inch high. Why'd she have to do that? She had revealed to the world it felt like that his family was wretchedly poor, which was humiliating to him. So from that moment on, he determined to work as hard as needed to provide what he could for his family so that even if they were still poor, nobody would have to know it or go to such an embarrassing extreme as taking up a collection of food for them. Well, one good thing about having a fairly stable home again was that he started making lasting friends around the South End neighborhood. The Depression was starting to set in, and um, although there were still some families that had it better than others, it seemed like it brought kids of varying socioeconomic situations closer together. Dad and his brother, Webby, and coming along on their heels, their youngest brother, Don, would play football with the other boys, uh, regardless of who lived in the big houses and who lived in the garages. And Sister Helen, uh, the eldest of the family, became friends with a girl who lived in comparatively posh circumstances on Arlington Avenue. But those kids who were better off didn't taunt there was an an understanding that times were hard for one heck of a lot of people through no fault of their own the one exception and dad and aunt helen would seethe still over him many years later was this little snot as aunt helen described him a brat who came out from the city in the summers to stay with a, a an affluent aunt and uncle of the neighborhood and they showered him with expensive gifts, and he would gloat. He would pedal past the kids who had no bikes, or in my dad's case, had like, picked, ratty bites, picked ratty bikes out of uh, dump sites and pieced together one reasonably functioning one. So this little snot would say, Look at my shiny new bicycle! And it was always a relief when little Mikey Douglas went back home at the end of the summer. And then years later, Mike Douglas turned out to be a famous singer and a uh, talk show host on national TV. So eventually, those South End neighborhood boys formed what they called gangs. And it was uh, much more innocent than what we think of when we hear the word gangs today. They were just boys who were hanging out and engaging in mild mischief, let's say. At first, they called themselves the Frog Hollow Gang for a slough area down uh, down around Poplar Creek, which was a soggy marsh, more often than not, and it was full of croaking bullfrogs and cattails in the spring and the summer. Besides the uh, Blazer Boys, uh, among the members of the Frog Hollow gang were Lyle Holf, Winston Noray, Jack Taylor, Don Depew, and some of the Jacobs and Priggy kids. And then they decided they wanted to sound a little more dangerous and sophisticated, so Dad and his brothers and some of their best buddies broke away and became known as the Purple Gems. And those left behind in the Frog Hollow gang also changed their name, but by the time I heard these stories, Dad couldn't remember to what. But he did recall uh, that the more or less head of that rival gang was a young Dick Gromer, who would eventually inherit the local supermarket chain. So the, the Purple Gems really looked down on Dick Gromer's gang for two reasons. First, they let girls into their group, You know, talk about wrecking a good thing. Yeah, girls. And second, Dick Gromer's gang, uh, they dug a crummy trench for their clubhouse. And the the Purple Gems, on the other hand, had been uh, learning carpentry. The fire barn at the Arlington and St. Charles V had been shut down because of the city's lack of money to pay the firemen. And so instead, they're... Was a federal um, like WPA or NRA program to teach boys working in that, to teach boys how to, uh, how to do woodworking in that building, in the firehouse building. So they were able to completely build and, and fairly competently a true clubhouse out of scrap wood. And the best part was they built it over a narrow but deep spot on Poplar Creek. And the slats of the the ceiling and the walls had enough gaps to let light in so they could see inside the clubhouse, but there was not a, a regular door. Instead, they had a square hole in the floor and it was accessed by rowing a small boat under it and ducking and climbing in. And they would tie the boat off to to use it for their departure later. It was really pretty cool. And inside their clubhouse, the, uh, the purple gems engaged in such nefarious behavior as uh, reading comic books and playing cards and smoking cigarettes. I'm sad to say my dad, like many kids back then, was a nicotine addict by the time he was nine. And um, as to their bad boy activities, they'd did do some dangerous things like they would go downtown Elgin and mess with the poles that connected the electric lines to the streetcars and would make them spark wildly. Or there was the time that uh, somebody found a large supply of rope. And uh, they sneaked out late one night to wrap it completely around the small house of a mean neighbor who was always on their case. As my dad said, we tied him into his house. And then there was the time-honored prank of putting a plop of horse apples on a front porch with a long-fused firecracker placed in it, and then lighting the fuse, ringing the doorbell, and running. And they also found a way to get free ice cream bars for a few happy days. The brand that was sold at one neighborhood mom-and-pop store had uh, wooden sticks embedded in them. And every one of every so many had a free bar printed on it. Well, of course, you weren't supposed to know if you'd won a free bar until you had duly purchased and eaten one of them. But the Purple Gems learned that they could wait until the store proprietor wasn't looking and carefully pull the stick out of the ice cream bar and see whether it was a winner. And if it was, they'd take that stick up to the counter to present it for Free, for the free one, you know. And finally, the store owner caught on when uh, half the ice cream bars in his freezer case had no sticks in them. But um, a part of the fun of being a kid then, as now, was in play acting. Sheer escapism, in their case, from the Depression. And for that, one of their gang was a, a natural leader, and that was Jack Taylor, Dad always said of Jack, big imagination. Jack claimed, but remember, big imagination, that his father owned vaudeville and burlesque stage theaters in Chicago, and his mother had been a chorus girl. So his parents weren't married, and in those days you couldn't just really live with your mom, especially if she was a chorus girl. So instead, he had been shipped out to Elgin to be raised by a widowed grandmother and his rich theater owner father sent money to her. Now, that my dad would feel an affinity with Jack Taylor at that point of their lives made a lot of sense, because my dad's mother's family was from Chicago, and most of them had been vaudeville performers, including my grandma, who once sang on stage with Al Jolson. And she had a brother named Johnny, stage name Peanuts Bone, Uh, who was still trotting the boards, he emceed at the Rialto Theater, which is said to have been the inspiration for um, the Broadway and movie musical Chicago. Well, until he could assume his rightful role of Chicago theater mogul heir, and then branch out into Hollywood movie making, and he promised to make my dad a silver screen star when he got there, Uh, Jack made up stories for the purple gems to act out after school. And his model for these stories were the increasingly popular radio serials of the time, these far-fetched adventure tales set on pirate islands or in lion-infested African jungles or on Mars. And they always ended with a cliffhanger until the next episode. It seemed that Jack, with his imagination could whip these stories up right on the spot, and he would assign everybody roles in them. So my dad was often cast as the hero, because he just didn't have villain in him. But as they all went madly dashing around through the woods, slogging through the slough of Frog Hollow, and huddling in their clubhouse over Poplar Creek, and engaging in whatever Climactic swashbuckling or shootout scenes that that the script and Jacks head called for that day. One thing was clear: Jack alone held the power of life and death, and that was not that anybody minded it because getting to do an over-dramatic death scene was more fun than anything. So when Jack said, "And then you get shot," you clutched your gut, ooh, and fell over, and 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 then you and then you drown in quicksand. You know, you jumped into a deep pocket in the slough and you crouched ever further lower and screaming,
1: help, help,
2: until if you could manage it, you'd get your head under the surface for as long as you could hold your breath. That slough came in handy uh, once a few years later when my Uncle Don was horsing around with his pails on a snowy day, but it was before the ground had frozen. They were hurling snowballs at passing cars and trucks along Villa Street, and someone must have called the cops because suddenly a squad car was coming, and the officer emerged from it and began to chase them. Well, those boys knew every step through the sloot. They knew where it was solid enough to set foot and where the deep sinkholes were. So they tore through, fleet-footed, and they, they hid behind Don Pearson's gas station at the corner of Villa and George Streets. They knew that Pearson, who was just standing there waiting for a customer, had seen them coming, and they could only hope that he'd be a pal and not give them away. So the next thing they knew, the cop was there at the gas station, too, and he was sopping wet and mad as a hornet. You've seen any kids around here throwing snowballs? Well, the the boys held their breath, but also trying not to laugh behind the building, and Pearson drawled this shrugging answer that my Uncle Don would never forget. Well, it's snowing, so there's a whole bunch of people throwing snowballs today. And the cop said, well, someone's going to get killed in that marsh. I have fell in and I about drowned. And he stomped back to his squad car and he left. Don Pearson had saved them. Well, time marches on. The Purple Gems Clubhouse over Poplar Creek actually lasted a, a long time, a couple of years or so before a spring flood washed it away. And those boys, so many of them sons of World War One doughboys, became men, and no sooner did the Depression fade than uh, most of found themselves fighting World War II. Jack Taylor, as a mid-teen, attended a military academy and then came back to finish schooling at Elgin Academy before disappearing for many, many years. And when he and my dad reestablished contact in 1970, it was uh, at their half-century points. Their lives were simply too different to be close friends again. And certainly my dad couldn't be impressed by Jack's wild stories or promises anymore. Jack and his wife, uh, they were living in Chicago then, and Dad and Mom and I would spend one of the most magnificently amazing days of my life with them that year. But that's a story for somewhere else. And Jack claimed that day, in 1970, that he had indeed made it to Hollywood as a uh, screenwriter, but he had been blacklisted in the McCarthy era, era, and his uh, name and his career were ruined. Now, was that true, or was it just more big imagination? Uh, I still keep searching, uh, but I haven't been able to answer that. He was an alcoholic, which he admitted to that day, and said he was in AA. But a few years later, he fell off the wagon, and the last time that my father would see Jack was back in his sort of hometown of Elgin, but at the worst possible place, which was the alcoholic ward at the Elgin State Hospital. Mom and I sat in the car while Dad went in to one of those long brick barrack style buildings on the on the uh, grounds. So Jack Taylor spent his final days in the Croydon Hotel in Chicago, which was on Rush Street, and a appropriately among a lot of old, decrepit vaudevillians. I think it must have been a very colorful place to be in the 1970s, the late 1970s. And I, I hope that he heard some really great stories of the old days, the evening before they found him dead in his room one morning. I think he died on my 19th birthday, actually. And he died penniless, and he was buried in the uh, Cook County potter's field. But I think on him very kindly because he and his big imagination made it possible for my dad and for other Frog Hollow gangsters and Purple Gems to forget their tough depression lives and have a little fun every day. So, when I was little, for several years, my aunt was married to a man who lived in the very last house on Elizabeth Street. And it didn't get any more south end of Elgin than that. That was it. It was a short stroll to Leitner's Burger Joint. And um, no offense, but that area was pretty grubby in the 60s. And some people uh, ran workshop businesses out of their homes. And there was often the smell of burnt oil and the sound of machinery emanating from my aunt's neighbor's houses and concrete block garages. But I loved going there because it was the one place my mother would let me get dirty, where I got hundreds of mosquito bites and bright red sunburns, and I didn't care a bit, where I frolicked in a a three-foot-deep snap-together swimming pool, for which a removed cellar window screen served as a bug skimmer, and where I could dash up little dirt hills and roll down giggling, and where I could holler-sing Herb Elpert instrumentals with my cousins. da 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 And all of this eventually inspired a song which will close out this episode of This Is My Elgin, South End Blues. If you enjoy this program, please give us a like and send us some feedback at slynblazer, that's s-l-y-n-n-b-l-a-z-i-e-r at gmail.com. Thank you to source, uh, One Source Productions for making it happen, and I thank you for listening. The
0: dandelions grew a whole lot bigger down here And milkweed seeds were always drifting by I constantly had to sneeze Had thorn scrapes on my knees We'd shake the trees for ripe cherries Happy kid times on the south side The men came home from work late and stinking a sweat Collapsed in their chairs bare, hungry for a meal Women were busy all day, cooking and cleaning their dreams away Ironing clothes, watching afternoon soaps And so I could feel the soul and me
1: up the sun
0: And the frog hallow gang And the purple gems This was my father's neighborhood Way, way back when The depression laid him low So he'd shovel weed or mow Set bowling pins or run errands Anything he could do for a penny or two That
1: was my dad
0: The whole town knew the best food was down here So they'd come from Gold Coast and River West and Rivers East For Morris Barbecues and a Burns Malter to Blue Ox Strawberry pies, liners, burgers and fries That brown sack of grease was certain to ease the
1: risk.
0: the end of Smitty's once in the middle of the day. There was a guy at the bar hunched over his ear, looking the other way. Daddy slapped him on the back, said, how's life treating you, Jack? And Jack said, "Shit!" Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there, honey. And I didn't mind a little profanity. I
2: loved his honesty.
0: So I suppose you're wondering what could be the point of this here song Do you think I'm making fun of these blue-collar flies? Uh-huh. No, it's just the opposite, I admired all their grit There ain't no snobs in factory jobs They may not have thrive, but they damn well survive But those who made the decision to go to hell in a handbasket Convenient across the street From Smitty's was Elgin Casket Then up the boulevard To that neatly kept boneyard To rest nice and pretty For that
1: big party at Bluff city No, my son